The last thing you need in, in, in church leadership is argumentative men, quarrelsome men, men who want to argue about everything. That's horrible. And if a man does not want to suffer, if a man or a woman does not want to suffer, they must be far away from the Christian life in general, but especially from leadership. We lead under the authority of the Bible. We teach the Bible. We counsel with the Bible. We exhort with the Bible. We pray with the Bible. And we defend the Bible. That's why they must be men grounded in the Bible. We love the instruction part. We love the pastor's duty to encourage us, to instruct us. But when it comes to the second part, that's the necessity of this office to rebuke us, we don't like that. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now let us turn to Titus 1, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus 1. Starting verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated. What are the leaders of a local church supposed to be like? What are the main traits of those leading the church. This week I came across a website, and the title of the website was Smart Church Management. So it's a website to help churches with management, helping churches with leadership. And in this website I found an article, and the article was entitled 14 Traits, 14 Traits of Effective Church Leadership. The first one, the first trait was the leader must be a person of influence. So they say leaders influence others to get things done. They help others see what needs to be done 
and then they show them the path forward. So that's the number one trait that church leaders must have. Uh, the second one was the big picture thinker. So a big picture thinker. And they say leaders are big picture thinkers. And they can rise above the day to day and see things from broad perspective. They can excite people about where they're going and how to get there. People often get stuck in their own little corner of the world and they need help seeing things from a bird's eye view. Then it says, my pastor does a great job of providing employees and volunteers with testimonies, with testimonies of people whose lives the ministry has touched. This shows the person who cleans the bathroom that his or her work helps to impact the lives of others. Other qualifications or traits for the leaders in the church are they believe the best in people. They're master delegators. They empower others. They're team players. They celebrate success. What I didn't find in this list of 14 was traits such as blameless, holy, husband of one wife, able to teach, holding firm to the sound doctrine. These things, I could not find it. And in other sites, she was not able to find that. And sadly, many Christians and many churches are looking at the world to see what the pastors are supposed to look like or be like. And no wonder, once we start adopting worldly standards for leadership, we have churches that are worldly, meaning they're not churches at all. Joe MacArthur said, it goes without saying that whoever leads in the church will determine what that church becomes in large measure. The life of the church, the ministry of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church, the character of the church, the emphasis of the church, all of that is dependent on the leadership of the church. Church leadership is an essential element of New Testament teaching. There is an inseparable connection between the quality of the leadership in a church and the character of that church. And how many people you talk to them and they're going to churches and you ask why they're going to church or you know that people are looking for a church and the main thing they're targeting is the programs. So why do you go to that church? Because they have wonderful programs for the youth, for the kids, for the singles, for the elderly. Instead of a healthy church with healthy leadership that teaches and proclaims the sound teaching. And once biblical, once unbiblical standards are placed, unbiblical leaders will take over the church, and then you're going to have an unbiblical church. And that's why we desperate need Titus 1. That's why we desperate need Titus 1. Because in Titus 1, we find what God requires from those who will be leading the church. And not Titus 1 alone, we have other texts. But as we come to Titus 1, that's where we are. Look with me to verse 5. Verse 5 is, is, is the setting here. And we are told that Paul left Titus in Crete in order to uh, put things in order. Sometimes we, we don't like old church order, polity, 
It's all so vital to have the church in order. That's why Paul is leaving Titus there. And the first thing, one of the main things of keeping the church in order is by appointing orderly men. Men who are well-ordered in their spiritual life, in their home. And we remember that all these qualifications here are for all of us. It's not just for pastors. All of us must be aware of these qualifications, be attentive, because we all, all Christians are called to be in a local church, in a local church where the pastors have these qualifications And also, most of these qualifications are for every Christian. Amen? Look at Titus 1, verses 6 through 9. Only verse 9 is not required for every Christian. All the other things are required for everyone. So, as we continue here our journey... We, we already look at the conditions for the pastoral ministry. What are the conditions? First, he needs to be a man... He needs to aspire, have the strong desire. And then we have that main character qualification that's blameless. We saw these things. And then we move the the, the man aspire, the man serving in leadership. He must have a blameless home. Not a perfect home because no man has a perfect home. But blameless, without main blemishes. It's an example. And we saw that in his home, the pastor and his wife, the pastor and his children. And now we are in the blameless heart or the blameless blameless conduct. And we saw, you can see in verses 7 through 8, as we saw these past few Sundays, is that we have the things that those who are aspiring to be leaders and those who are in leadership, things that they must put to death, the vices, and then things that they must put on, the virtues. And we finish last Lord's Day, verse 8. But we are not done yet. And that's why I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, because we are going to continue looking at some of the qualifications, but now going to 1 Timothy chapter 3, before we go back to Titus 1.9. So, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And let's look at verse 2. That's another qualification. That we don't, don't have in Titus. Sober-minded. So it says, Therefore, an overseer or a pastor or an elder, he must be above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife. And look at that. Sober-minded. Depending the, the, the version that you have, if you have the NIV or if you have the, the legacy, it's temperate. Or if you have the King James Version, you have vigilant. But the idea here is that this person is level-headed. The mind and the actions of this man are governed by sobriety. What is a sober person? A person who has control over his actions, right? That's what a sober person implies. He has control. Sober in making decisions in light of the fact that many important decisions will be made in the life of the local church. So the men in leadership, they must be sober when they're making decisions. They cannot be infected and affected by the emotions of the moment. I like what Ben Merkel says. He writes, The word translated sober-minded is sometimes translated as temperate and is often used in in connection with sobriety from alcohol. But in the context of 1 Timothy 3, however, it's best understood as referring to mental sobriety. Mental sobriety. 
that is a mind that can think clearly and spiritually about important matters. Look at that. It's the ability to be self-controlled, having a balanced judgment, and being able to rationally make cool-headed decisions. Elders must be mentally and emotionally stable enough to make important decisions in the midst of problems and pressures that they will face in their ministry. That's vital. So many issues, full of emotions. Amen? In the life of church, very emotional people, emotional circumstances. And the pastors, the elders, they must be sober when they're making the decisions. Let me remind you that this qualification is for all Christians. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, 2 Timothy 4, 5, 1 Peter 1, 13, it all tells that all Christians are supposed to be sober-minded. If you go to Titus chapter 2, verse 2 is going to tell that the older men are supposed to have this qualification here, this character, this virtue, to be sober-minded. And you think about what is a good shepherd, a good pastor over the flock, is the one who is attentive. He's sober. He's not under the influence. You know, sometimes you're so tired that you feel like you're drunk. You, you lose control. You're so tired. that. And some moms are, yes, I know very well. Right? It's like, and that's the, the picture of a man who is sober-minded. As a pastor, he's watching over the flock. He's not intoxicated by the high pressure and the emotions that's taking place. They must be mentally and emotionally stable. You do not, uh, you, honestly, you do not want elders, pastors, who stop thinking clearly and stop making sound decisions because of the pressure of the moment. Because then you have a, a group of people who are just overwhelmed by feelings and the pressure, and the pastors cannot be carried along. They must, they must be men who are sober. Wait a second. Let us think clearly here. Let us look to both sides. Amen? Every Christian is supposed to control their emotions and feelings by taking them captive under the Word of God. Every Christian. It's a terrible thing when you hear people, I can do that. Just it's like, hey, calm down. As a Christian, you have a duty to take captive your feelings and all your emotions under the Word of God. And the pastors, the elders, they're going to be an example of that. We have a lot of emotions. Sometimes you guys think that pastors don't have emotions. We have a bunch of emotions and feelings. But we've got to be careful how we control those feelings and emotions. To not be a mess <laughs> and then mess the church. So Peter tells, in the context of talking to, to elders in the church, he says, be sober-minded, 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the shepherds must be an example of sober-mindedness. Amen? Another one. 
another one that we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that is respectable or dignified, dignity. It's an interesting word that Paul uses here, cosmios, having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight, an expression of high regard for persons. So he translated as respectable, honorable. And you can see that the word, there is a, a word in English that's very similar to that, and that is cosmos. So this Greek word is related to cosmos, and that is because the universe has order. It's an orderly thing. And that's why there is beauty. So the word cosmetic, something beautiful, it's orderly. There is order. And that's how the men in leadership are supposed to be. They are to be dignified. They are to be respectable. And especially now talking about the, the outside appearance. How they behave, what they say, how they act. How do you feel, what do you think... When you're talking to somebody and that person is cracking dirty jokes, being vulgar, and then he tells you that he's a pastor of a church. It's like, whoa. We all want pastors being dignified, respectable. His life, his actions, how he behaves, how he speaks. And even how he dresses himself, amen? How he dresses himself. Spurgeon talks a lot about how the ministers are supposed to dress themselves. And we live in a culture where dressing is becoming more and more careless. Just, I think, two weeks ago, Senate Majority Leader, Democratic Chuck Schumer of New York announced that the unwritten rules of the dress code in the Senate were going to be changed in order to relax the dress code that previously required business attire of, for men. So it's, it's now like, it's like, you just dress however you want. Want to wear pajama pants? Great. Go to work like that. And unfortunately, we see more and more pastors behaving and dressing like juveniles instead of acting and dressing with dignity of the office. Ben Merkel, once again, he says, an elder also must have character that is respectable. It's not enough to get his respect from his office. If others are to follow and emulate him, he must prove that his life is worth following. It's so true. You don't become respectable and dignified once you take off the office. You become an office bearer because people can see that you are dignified and respectable. Amen? Oh, once I become an elder, then I will be respected by people. Once I have a title in the church, then people will respect me. No. It's by your life. People respect, they see the dignity, they see the character, the life of a shepherd in you, an under-shepherd. And that's why they say, you should be an overseer. And remember, Paul just said in Titus that they need to put the church in order. So the men leading the churches, putting the church in order, must be men who are orderly, their lives. Another one, 
1 Timothy 3, 6, he says, he must not be a recent convert. He, must, he cannot be newly saved. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, when a, a, a man who just got saved or his salvation is kind of recently, and he takes an important and respected leadership position without the deep maturity that comes with time, he may become filled with pride and end up destroying the ministry and defaming the name of God. Because a lot of times when you're newly saved, you don't know. You don't know the main areas of your life where the Lord needs to work in a deeper manner. The Greek word for newly convert there that Paul uses was referred to something newly planted. And the idea is that those who are in leadership cannot be newly planted in the church of Christ. They have to be there for some time to have roots, that people can see the fruits. The eldership, Philip Ryken says, the eldership is no place for beginners. As Paul will say later, do not be hasty in the laying of hands. It's much better, that's wisdom here, it's much better to be short an elder or two than to have a novice on the leadership. You see, one of the titles is elder, implying what? His maturity, his spiritual maturity to lead the church. And look how Paul says, he must not be a recent convert or he may, be, or he may become puffed up with conceit and then fall into the condemnation of the devil. And the goal here, think about that, the purpose is to protect that man from falling into the trap of the devil. When you're helping some, some man who aspired the office, but you say, hey, not yet. You're literally helping him. It's better for you. So you don't fall into the trap of the devil. You need time. And if he falls in the trap of the devil, it's not going to be him himself. He's going to affect the whole church. Another one. Paul says that he cannot be violent. We saw that before in our study in Titus. But Paul adds one more. He says he must be gentle. Not violent, but gentle. And I need to remind us all that gentleness is not weakness or fragility. We, gentleness is not a feminine trait. Jesus is and was, while he was on earth, the most gentle man who ever lived. Gentleness, the picture of the, the, the word you use, is, is especially for kings, royalty, who have power, but they know how to control their power in acting with people. Gentleness can never be divorced from firmness with God's word. So, we read from Philip Ryken, he says, the true strength of a man lies in gentleness. Of course, an elder must be firm when he rebukes sin. When overseers lack the courage to confront, the church loses its conviction. But an elder must be gentle, he must live among God's people like a tender shepherd. 
And one of the, the, the most humbling praises that I hear from the members, people who have been for a long time with me, is that I have been seeing you grow in gentleness. You hear my wife, my kids saying that, you have been growing in gentleness. For me, that's, wow, because it's so rare. Biblical gentleness. And gentleness is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Think about pride is ugly. It's a horrible stain. Gentleness is attractive. It's beautiful because the Lord Jesus, come to me. For I am gentle, he says. Another one. Paul says that those aspiring or those in leadership cannot be quarrelsome, argumentative. Is a man who literally avoids unnecessary fights and combats. The man is peaceful. The last thing you need in, in, in church leadership is argumentative men, quarrelsome men. Men who want to argue about everything. That's horrible. Because there are a lot of quarreling in the church. People arguing about the type of chair they were using, the color of the carpet. People are arguing about the time of things. People are quarreling about all sorts of things. And the last thing you need is people in leadership who are going to be joining their voices in quarreling. They need to be peacemakers. Amen? And honestly, who likes to be around quarrelsome people? Nobody likes being around quarrelsome people. People just want to argue. That's horrible. Another one, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Timothy. He says, moreover, those aspiring or those in leadership, he must be well thought, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So that he may not fall into the disgrace, into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Imagine, like I, I, I made that reference before, and you have a neighbor. That guy is noisy, dirty, disrespectful, always yelling at their kids. You can hear him screaming at his wife and kids from far away. And then you find out that he pastors a church. Or a guy at work who is cheating on his business. You know that he's cheating on his wife. And then he tells you that he's an elder in a church. That brings disgrace to the church. That's why he must be well thought of by those outside the church. And we always got to balance with the truth that we will be persecuted, that people will hate us. But there can, there can never be truth to their accusations. Amen? They might hate us because of the gospel, but it should never be true that when we go into the court of the Lord Jesus, that those things that they were saying are actually truth of us. Amen? The, those aspiring or those exercising pastoral ministry must be men who have a reputation among all people for being just, faithful, trustworthy. One more. One more. 
And that's not found in the list itself, but it's all throughout the scriptures in, I would say, Old and New Testament, and especially in the New Testament. And that is the willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake. All those aspiring pastoral ministry must be willing to suffer and suffer much. Paul says, indeed all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will uh, will be persecuted. And the elders, the pastors, they are supposed to be a role model of godliness to the church. We saw that. Blameless is someone who shows the church how to live a godly life. Of course, imperfect, but a godly life. So if the pastors, the leaders are supposed to be an example of godly life, therefore there must be an example of what? Yes, suffering, persecution. Amen? If you're going to be an example of godly living, and all those who want to live godly lives will be persecuted, therefore you'll be a display of suffering. If Christ Jesus, the great pastor, the senior pastor, suffered unjustly, who are the under shepherds to think that they will escape suffering? And if a man does not want to suffer, if a man or a woman does not want to suffer, they must be far away from the Christian life in general, but especially from leadership for a man. Because pastors will be a display of persecution and suffering to the church to see. And how they behave during the suffering and the persecution. And the suffering will come from all sides. It will be physical, illness, all sorts of suffering. It will be persecution from without, from within. And the most painful ones are those from within the church. Those are the most painful ones. The suffering, the persecution that come from those who you love so much. And I have seen pastors forsaking the pastoral ministry because of the scars that they could no longer handle. The pain. There is a vast number vast number of pastors who forsake the pastoral ministry because of the pain and the suffering that goes without, with it. Spurgeon said, one crushing stroke, one crushing stroke has sometimes laid the ministry very low. The minister goes low. The brother most relied upon becomes a traitor. Ten years of toil do not take so much life out of us as we lose in a few hours by Ahithophel, the traitor, or Demas, the apostate. And different from all other jobs, as Spurgeon says, the pastoral ministry is a heart, is a heart work, is a work of the heart. You get hurt in church, but you have your job, and you go to your job. You get hurt in church for the pastors, you don't go outside. You continue ministry. And then we must learn to minister with a broken heart. And that 
devastated heart cannot affect how we minister to people. Isn't that true? The pastors get hurt, but their hurt cannot affect how they minister to other people. You can't. The stabbing of the pastor's back by a member, instead of leading others to come, rare, very rare, those who come alongside you to support the pastor. Actually, when the pastor who has been ministered for years, publicly displaying his character, once he's stabbed on his back, what generally happens is people get suspicious and start questioning his character. After he proved himself for many, many years, So the call to shepherd the flock is a call to suffer. And you must know how to suffer. Because people are watching you. And how you suffer will impact their lives too. And in all these sufferings, the great shepherd is making his under-shepherds more like him and his people more like him. So, to bring to conclusion this part of the qualifications that we have been looking at, these are not exhaustive. We could go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We could do so much more, but we have enough here for us. And what we see here, the, these qualifications, they show us there is a picture that Paul and the Lord Jesus is trying to paint to us. Is that the picture that the pastors, they're not perfect. They're far away from being perfect. But they have integrity. Their life is a whole. Amen? There is a picture here of the gospel in their lives. Of course, they're not perfect. But I can see the gospel in their lives. That's what, that's what he wants us to see. That's what Paul and the Lord Jesus wants us to see is that the elders, far from being perfect, they're, they're pictures of how the gospel is so powerful in the life of this man. They're Christ's instruments to show his people that though imperfect, the gospel is powerful to change us and make us a new creation. So Kent Hills and Brian Chappell, they say, and that's so beautiful what they say. They say, until one assumes the responsibility of church leadership, there, there may be no real awareness of how messy are the lives of so many people in our churches for whom God makes us responsible. Beneath their surface courtesies, many people are burdened by dissatisfying marriages, enslaved to lusts, and addictions, entangled in patterns of thought and habit that they desperately hope, but can hardly imagine that they can escape. They say, they are ensnared in dead-end pursuits of money and power that control their lives without satisfying their souls. Such persons are desperate for the incarnation of the gospel in the lives of church leaders. Listen to this. A godly example demonstrates not that elders are more deserving of grace than others, but that one who is in us is more powerful than the one who is in the world. 
godly leadership proves that freedom from slavery of sin and selfishness is possible. The awareness that a Christian leader's example helps others learn to hope that their lives really can be different should help us understand, look at that, that blamelessness is a ministry and not just something personal. The blameless life is a ministry because we are ministering to others. And that's why it's a qualification. Amen? So turn with me to Titus 1.9. Let's go to Titus 1.9. And now we come to the last part, and that is the blameless doctrinal and teaching skill. Remember, that's not perfect by no means, but he must be an example of the doctrine that he holds and how he teaches that doctrine to the church. So there is a movement in Titus from the pastor's home to the pastor's heart to the pastor's life in the house of God. And as we come to Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is, brothers and sisters, that's the only qualification. That's the only qualification that requires skills for leaders in the church. All others are moral, their character. This is the only qualification related to skills, a gift that the elders must have. And it's interesting to see as you look at the difference. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, you have 21 words. In verse 9, you have 21 words. You have a whole sentence dealing just with this qualification of teaching. Contrast with the other ones, they're just hospitable. Gentle, not a drunkard, not greedy. But here you have a whole sentence to show what? The importance, the importance of this skill, the importance of this qualification. He must hold firm to the trustworthy of God, the trustworthy as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The men aspiring or those shepherding God's flock, they must be grounded. They must be grounded in sound doctrine. They must be grounded in the Bible. Why? Why? Because they will preach the Bible. They will lead. We lead under the authority of the Bible. We teach the Bible, we counsel with the Bible, we exhort with the Bible, we pray with the Bible, and we defend the Bible. That's why they must be men grounded in the Bible. Look at that, he must hold firm. He must hold firm. The word there to hold firm means to have a strong attachment to something, to cling, hold fast, be devoted to the same word is used in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be what? Devoted, right? 
Yes, the idea is devoted to one and despise the other. The elders, the pastors, they must be men who they cling to the word for their lives. You think about somebody who is drowning. Think about somebody who is drowning. And suddenly you throw a f- something to, for them to hold that for their lives. If you have seen pictures of people being rescued like that, you know that they do not let go of that for nothing. They will not let go for nothing. And that's the picture of those leading the church. Men who hold to the scriptures and not let go for nothing. A first fierce attachment. Because you know when they open their mouth to counsel, to teach, to preach, it's the Bible that's coming out of their mouth. The word of God is this man's master. He's fully and completely devoted to the Bible. It's like he's married to the Bible. And let me tell you that the, the biblical elder, the biblical pastor, not only holds firm to the Bible, but the Bible holds firm to that man too. That man has been taken captive by the word of God. He can do nothing but be a slave of the word of God. And that's the type of pastor that you must have in your church. You do not want a people coming to the pulpit that you don't know what they're going to be preaching. If it's going to be a story, if it's just going to be entertainment, but you know that whenever they open their mouths, it's going to be the scriptures. Whenever they teach, it's going to be the Bible. Some of us have been in churches where we were embarrassed of bringing people to church because we never knew what was going to be preached. Right? I have been to churches where I was embarrassed of bringing people to church because I never knew. Is he going to preach the scriptures or is he just going to be entertaining people? Because the last thing you want is people to come to church thinking that's a circus. So it says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy of the trustworthy word as taught, implying that the pastors are humble men who sit. They have been sitting under the teaching for some time. There are men who spend hours, days, months, years sitting under the teaching of God's Word. And notice how Paul calls the word the trustworthy. The trustworthy. Why? Because it's reliable. Why do you preach the Word all the time? Because it's reliable. You know. You know that's trustworthy. What God promised to do with His Word, He will do it. It's trustworthy because it does what it promises. It gives new life to those who believe. It forgives the sins. It brings people to repentance. It comforts those who are suffering. Amen. It's trustworthy. So Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And look at the reason. So that what? So that? He may be able. This word is so important. Be able. He need, Paul tells in 1 Timothy 3 two that he must be able to teach. Meaning he must be gifted with the teaching. He must have this gift from God himself to be able to instruct the people of God with the word of God. 
Have you ever heard of pastors? He's such a good pastor, he's just not a good preacher. Have you heard that? I have. He's such a good pastor, he's just not a good teacher. I love what Raven S. he writes, he says, No man is truly a pastor in the church of God unless he's a teacher. There is no place for saying that one is a fine pastor but not much of a teacher. Such a statement is akin to saying, this is a fine car, it just does not run. If something fails to do that for which it's designed, then it's not fine. The office of bishop, elder, pastor, according to this passage, is designed for instructing the people of God in the word of God. Because the church cannot operate or grow in any way other than by the word of God. So the elders, the pastors, they must be men who are able to teach. Amen? And inside the elders, there will be different giftings, even with teaching. You get a group of elders, and some men are very gifted in public speaking, while some are very good in, in small settings. There are some men who are excellent, some elders who are excellent in one-on-one or in a small group. Others are better with bigger group. But the thing is, they must always be able to teach. He must be able to take from the Word of God, organizing his mind, explain with his mouth in a way that the mind of the people of God will be able to understand. Right? It's a gift that God gives. For you to read the Scriptures, bring it to your mind and heart, and now speak in a way that the minds and the hearts of God's people will understand and apply that. And then he tells us, he says, that he may be able to, I like, I like the ESV, the ESV says to give instruction. The NIV or the Christian Standard Bible has to encourage, other has to exhort. And then some people say, but wait, 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 wait a second. My Bible says to encourage, and then the other version says to exhort. Yes. Sometimes we think that exhortation is necessarily something ugly and bad. No. Exhortation is a good thing. The, the Greek word parakaleo here is a, it's a it's broad word that can mean to encourage, exhort, to urge, to cheer up, to excite. That's why I like the ESV because it, it captures the idea here to instruct. And in the instruction that we are giving, sometimes the exhortation comes with encouragement. I can encourage, I can, I can exhort someone through encouragement. Right? So I can say, Chris, I see the work of the Lord in your life, Chris. I see the Holy Spirit working in you. I see you growing. Chris, keep putting to death that sin, brother. Keep putting to death that sin that keeps trying to show up sometimes. You see, I'm exhorting at the same time, what? Encouraging. There is no difference. The great contrast here is between encouraging and then rebuking. That's the contrast, the exhortation and the rebuking. And that's important because sometimes you have pastors who they become, I would say, uh, dump trucks of theological information. 
So they're just dumping a bunch of theological information. And in the preaching and in the teaching, the pastor must give instruction in a form of exhortation, encouragement. That's the application of the preaching. Amen? We must bring to life. We must apply that to the life of the flock. And that's why one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the comforter, right? The Greek word parakletos. That's from where you have parakaleo. So the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, he used the parakaleo, the exhortation, the encouragement of the preaching to change our lives. But not only that, but look at, and also to rebuke, to give instruction, he says. Let me skip here. Go to, and to rebuke. And that's where we don't like. We love the instruction part. We love the pastor's duty to encourage us, to instruct us. But when it comes to the second part, that's the necessity of this office to rebuke us, we don't like that. But it's the duty of those leading the church. Refresh some and rebuke others. Comfort some, condemn others, compliment and correct. That's the duty of pastoral ministry. Paul says in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you, telling Timothy, and that's applied to all those in leadership in the church, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing, His kingdom. Look at that. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Look at that. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's the duty. And then if you go prior to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and what? Rebuke for correction and for training in righteousness. So elders are called also to rebuke those who contradict it. And there will always be people in the church, even in healthy churches, that will contradict it either by word or by works. The sound teaching. And the duty is to rebuke them. And we are going to develop more because as you come to verses 10 through 16, as Lord Willie, next week you're going to come here, it's, it's a development of what it means to rebuke this other aspect of the shepherd to protect the flock. So we're going to see more next Lord's Day. But look with me, this verse, is, it's just, I just love what Paul says to Titus. He says, he must hold firm, he must cling to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and rebuke in what? What is his means to rebuke and instruct? Sound doctrine. How many people nowadays say, doctrine divides, love unites, we don't need doctrine. Right? Have you heard that? Oh, doctrine divides. All that we need is love to unite us. No, it's doctrine that's going to unite us. And everyone, every church will be teaching some sort of doctrine. The question is whether this doctrine is healthy sound or unhealthy. The word used here is literally a medical word used for 
uh, where we get hygiene, is, is he healthy? It's not just because a man stands behind the pulpit that he's teaching sound doctrine. The church must be, the church must be always aware and watching, vigilant to see if the teaching is indeed healthy for the flock. So as we conclude this section here in in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, we see the power of the gospel. We see the Lord Jesus, how much he loves his church. He died for his church. He gave himself for the church. And then he gave leaders, pastors after his own heart to lead the church. And not only that, but he gives sound doctrine to feed his church. And it's the sound doctrine that helps you, brothers and sisters, to grow into Christ-likeness. And let me tell you, apart from sound doctrine, apart from sound doctrine, your spiritual life will perish. Many of you have been to churches where there there was no sound doctrine, and you know, you know how starving you were. If you are not fed with sound doctrine, you will die spiritually. So run to Christ. Run to the good shepherd and says, I need sound doctrine. Give me, give me a church where sound doctrine is taught. Help me, O oh Lord, because I need that to glorify you, to be healthy. And the Lord, the Lord Jesus loves to answer this type of prayer. And to finish, I come with just an exhortation for all of us. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. As Paul, verses 1 through 7, as Paul is bringing to conclusion the qualifications for elders, twice here he mentions our great enemy, the devil. You can see in verse 7 and in verse 6, the devil is mentioned. And that's to remind us that the devil is after, especially the leadership of the church. Riken says, Satan is out to get the elders of the church. This is basic military strategy. Truly, it's the oldest trick in the book. Satan has been using it since the days of Adam. The best way to defeat an army is to to attack its command and control. What better way to frustrate God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ than to overthrow the elders he has appointed to lead it? Paul's warning is a reminder to every Christian to pray urgently for the elders of the church who are subject to the most intense spiritual warfare of So pray for us. Pray for us. And pray for you. That you will be growing more and more into these qualifications here. Amen. Father, we we thank you. We thank you for your great faithfulness towards us. Thank you for answering our prayer. Thank you for sustaining me. And I pray that your word would go forth. 
And I pray that the satanic birds that try to snatch the seed would die. Remove them. And let your word bear fruit in our lives, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful morning where your wonderful grace has been manifested. We love you because you have loved us first. Please, Lord, be kind to us. Be patient. And surround us with your arms. Protect us. For the glory of your name.